0: Greetings from the Holly Central School District Library. This is Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. I'm joined today by Sheena Hammeter and Matt Hennard. Uh, it's the first episode without Mike that I've done, so this is going to be a little strange, but uh, Mike can't be here today. You know, that's kind of the great thing about Holly History. We've got multiple people that can be hosts, and we can just roll with the punches. Um, a reminder, please email us your, your questions at hollyhistory65 at gmail.com, or you can tweet us at hollyhistory. Both are good options. Um couple of thank yous and shout outs really quick. We want to do a huge thank you to Tyler Jones who you're gonna be seeing the new artwork here. Uh he's taking it to a whole new level. Tyler, you're crushing it. I mean I, I went up to Tyler today and I said, Hey, we need some for armistice day and he was like, Oh, okay, when you need by? I'm like, Don't worry about it, buddy, five o'clock like tonight, that'd be fine if you do it at home. He's like, Okay. And then he was like, I'll have a next period. I was like, okay, that, awesome. works. that works. That works. a Big thank you to Tyler. Um couple things here, shout-outs and prayers to Evan Valentine and his family, Uh, going through a tough time right now, going through treatment. We want to say that uh, we're Evan Strong here at Holly, and we're all wearing orange today in the studio right now, and this is the sea of orange day and support for you, Evan. Uh, We're all thinking of you, buddy. Thoughts and prayers are with you. I want to shout-out to our building principal, Sue Corey, too, who's going through a really difficult time as well. She is such a big supporter of the podcast and the department. Um, We love you, Sue. We're we're thinking about you and praying for you, too, as well. So on to our episode today that I was very excited to get in the studio and do. Um, We are doing a It's our second episode of this school year, and we wanted to commemorate the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day, which is known in the United States as Veterans Day to, to most people. In Europe, it's known as Remembrance Day. Uh, that's how they refer to it. And it's set on November 11th for a very particular reason, and most people don't realize this, is that's because of Armistice Day, which was the end of World War One. which today, 2018, or, well, Sunday, uh, November 11th, 2018, 100 years ago, the First World War ended. The worst conflict in human history up until that point uh, finally came to an end, and... They commemorated the day by naming it Armistice Day, which was a cease to the firing the treaty negotiations as we're gonna see in this episode Took a little while a bit longer till the summer of 1919 But we wanted to do a special episode today uh, for that reason and So I'm gonna bring in my, my get my fellow co host here. Uh, World War two really overshadows the second World War uh, Not so in Europe You guys ever notice like the celebrations and stuff like that then the, the things they do for World War one how the magnitude uh, I think that's kind of foreign to us in the United States with, with World War II kind of overshadowing it. Why, why do you think that, why do you think that is? Well, I
1: think the number one reason is because they were involved in it for so much longer, had so much more loss and destruction, uh, not only because it was fought on European soil, but also because they were in the war for three years before the United States ever joined. So the, the initial death and destruction that was so shocking to the system really mostly affected Europe. Uh, the U.S. comes in in, in mid to mid-1917. Yeah. And, and like you just said, by uh, November of 1918, the, the war had at least
0: come to a ceasefire. So, and the thing is, they're not even that involved in the 1917. Is that really till like the summer right. of 1918? Is the U.S. really in these large numbers? Right, they're just gearing up, gearing up yeah. in that
1: initial stage. So they have less, really, less than a full year of mm-hmm. really intense fighting that they're involved in. And so it does kind of seem like an afterthought sometimes. And because of Pearl Harbor with World War II, because of the Holocaust with World War II, a lot of those things, I think, are... More identifiable and more connectable to people in the U.S. That I just think World War II stands out more than World mm-hmm. War One. Sheen, why do you think World War II
0: stands out more than World War One? I?
2: I agree with a lot of the things that Matt said about it. Um, I definitely think that we didn't see all of the the tragedy and things of World War One as as closely as the, the people in Europe did.
0: And, and there's still parts of like the country you can't. Well, we're gonna get to this today. It's still parts of the country in, in, in Europe and in France and Belgium, you can't go. There's there's large sw- tracks of land. I mean, every now and then you read the news. A, a farmer will drive over uh, a buried ordinance from World War One and unfortunately meet his end. Right. Um, yeah, the scars. I mean, the scars left on the land from mm-hmm.
1: trench warfare and things are are still <laughs> there. You know, yeah. it's something that's in their face every single day. It's yeah. not something. That we see. It's a similar idea to like the Pearl Harbor Memorial, right? Mm -hmm. Like that idea of you're standing in the actual place where where these kinds of things happen. That has tends to have a significantly more
0: impactful effect on people. And we're going to get into those numbers later and everything, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of as we we go talk about the end of the war, because this is really a two part show. We're going to kind of have a round table here, and then later on, going to go through some some of the aspects of the end of the war, which unfortunately you're going to have to hear just my voice for that portion, but um, this beginning part of the show is more of that that collaborative piece. So that that's a great segue to our first question, is what sticks out in your mind about the First World War? Uh, Matt, you want to start? Doesn't matter. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I would say the, the
1: thing that sticks out, I mentioned it, right? I, and I think it's probably the first thing that pops into anybody's mind when they think about world war one is trench warfare of course just the the idea of trench warfare um every movie that's ever depicts world war one right anything you ever see talk hear about world war one it's always trench warfare and obviously there's a good reason for that the you know atrociousness and just the sheer casualties and foulness of trench warfare you talk about things like trench foot you talk about what life in the trenches was like we talked about um, in our World Wars elective last year the idea of the battles are being fought in the same place yep. in 1918 that they were being fought in 1914 and you have a static this, front Yes, yeah, stalemate Just nobody's gaining you're within the same few dozen miles or hundred miles of, of terrain and so there's bodies and there's disease and there's all of these things that these men are living amongst and so i think just the sheer to try to imagine what life would be like living in the trenches is almost unimaginable like you think about the worst possible thing you could think of the worst possible possible situation you could be in yeah that's living in the trenches and then Right? Like you're in this worst possible situation and then somebody says, okay, we're getting ready to go up over the top Mm -hmm. and you're going to go up out of this trench into machine gun fire knowing full well that the likeliness
0: of you returning to that trench or making it to the other trench... Is very very slim. I mean, besides just existing, right? right. Just living in that right. trench, just existing is hard enough. I and mean, you get the rats and absolutely all kinds of stuff. What about you, Sheena? What sticks out in your mind about World War One?
2: Well, going off of what Matt had said, um, the other thing that stands out to me as I get a little older is just the age of these guys that were going through it, and to think that wow, the man. people were suffering like that in those conditions, like nineteen, early twenties, mid twenties. of them lie. And and it was just yeah about to get age. in yeah yeah to get in yeah, and um, the fact that. You know, you think about where you were when you were in your early 20s or what adversity you'd gone through, and to think they were living in, like, these, basically like a living hell for some of them for this time of their lives and how, you know, amazingly difficult that must have been at that age.
0: And I think that's true of most that's true. veterans, too. Yeah. And that, I'm, I'm happy you brought that up because it's like that's something we forget. And uh, we brought in Andy Adeline a couple a couple times a few years ago world war ii veterans from niagara falls and Uh he always spoke about how like you don't realize that you the the best our college years right the best (laughs) years i mean matt you you gave up some of those years a little later on uh you had the college experience in the military you know um your husband Uh china you know these these in the, the years that i was in college you know what i mean you know doing doing college things getting education i'd always reach finals time and I would always think about how people always complain about finals and social media. I'm like, oh, I'm sure that, sure, some of my friends who are in the service would love to have just a final exam right now and then go home and see their families after the yeah. semester's over. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really good perspective point. Uh, I wrote down kind of as I was thinking about the loss of innocence that World War One brought the world. I think the world that went to war in 1914, the world, that, the world that came out. Of the war in 1918 were two totally different things. 1914, you have a, you still have a 19th century ideal, right? An 1800s ideal, walking in of this romanticism that war is this glorious adventure. I think World War One wipes that away completely. Even if you look at the the, the literature that comes out, right, the Lost Generation, of the United States, Ernest Hemingway, in uh, his cohort of writers, excuse me, really just completely changed everything. Um, World War One lost the innocence of Europe. It changed the way people looked at war. It changed the way people looked at the world. And, you know, you if you read these guys' accounts in different works, like now it can be told, it ushers in that modern age of warfare where we're cynics about war. You know, look at, uh, I think it's the precursor to when you look at things like Vietnam um, and, and the draft riots and the protests and things like that. I think World War I ushered in that age of modern warfare where war is not a game anymore. Uh, The full power of industrial states now goes to war. So for me, that's what that's what I put down was the the loss of innocence always stood out in my mind and that but that wasn't before I kind of became World War One a a few years ago. Before it was the trench warfare, like Matt said, that's what stood out to me. That's what I always knew about it. I didn't know a lot about World War One. Yeah. And then the more I researched, I completely fell in love with the topic because of the human experience in the ground and what these 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 people marched off with those ideals in the nineteenth century came out if they did make it out without those ideals. Well, I think that
1: we do see that. Every, you know, World War II gets kind of a, a pass on that because yeah. everybody knows that you know World War II happened for some very specific reasons, and there were some very noble causes yep. of world war ii whereas world war one you know when you really dig into the causes of it are really just a, a matter of powers in europe wanting to yeah. assert their position in the world and thinking of war in that romantic way oh we're going to go off we're going to win some glory we might win some territory and some status and the rude awakening that came with the new industrial, militarized nations that were Europe now Mm -hmm. were, yes, an an awakening to the people of Europe of, wow, war isn't... A game. A game. It's It's not not, something to be done to win glory. March off, trade swords. People go... People people by the millions die. And that is something that should be avoided in the future. Mm -hmm. And that... As much as that may not seem like the case sometimes today, we don't feel the pain of millions of losses in this country. European nations don't feel the pain of millions of losses anymore because when they are going to war, it's either the new military technology that's available or just the sheer fact of the places where wars are happening are not industrialized, modern countries. You can say what you want about... The value of human life, but when European and Western nations don't feel the impact of millions and millions of losses, yes, individual families feel loss, right? Individual you don't want to minimize that, lost. right? Yeah, you never want to minimize that. But on a grand scale, from a governmental idea of using warfare as a tool to accomplish a goal, World War One kind of stops all that because it's mm-hmm. like this is this is not what it used to be. This is not what we thought it was, and we just lost tens of millions of, of young men, right? And and civilians and women as well, right? Mm-hmm. Every, everybody, children, whatever. But millions of people lost for what? For what purpose? So that somebody
0: could come out with a little higher status? Well, so and I think that's a good honor. comparison of the United States and Europe too. If you look at casualty numbers in both world wars, this is not to minimize loss in the United States if people lost a loved one like World War II, for example. But the United States... The casualty numbers we'll, I'll get into later, the U.S. has been very good in every conflict it's fought in for the most part at minimizing those numbers. Again, not minimizing the loss of anyone um, in any of those conflicts, but the U.S. is very, very good at trying to save lives of their own soldiers. And we'll get into the numbers of that a little bit later on, too. So you kind of get put things in, put a lot in perspective as to why the First World War isn't as big for us. And it's huge for countries like France, Britain, Germany, uh, when we really uncover that. So we kind of came up with six things you should know about the First World War. Um, and the first thing I think that's on everybody's mind that everybody kind of understands is that it sets up the Second World War. Uh, the conditions laid out by the Treaty of Versailles and the surrender... Laid the foundations for Adolf Hitler in the Second World War. Any, either you two want to speak to that?
1: No, I mean we, you know, we talk about that quite a bit. I think um, in my Global Two class, we focus on that a bunch. We talk about how you know the ability of Hitler to rise to power is directly related to the end of world war one and and that's kind of i think the value the placeholder world war one almost becomes a placeholder for us in the u.s of well how did how did hitler come to power well world war one there was all this kind of mess that was left at the end of world war one and germany was kind of left in this weakened state so i i guess that that is pretty much the basic thing that everybody, at least in this country, knows about World War well, One. So it and, oh, and it's and true. World War Two. And it's true. And people need yeah, and, and, it.
0: Yeah. Right. And, and that's why I think I put it number one is because you got, it's like you got to check that box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you got to just point out that that's there. And the, the first World War, uh, one of the biggest consequences is it sets up the Second World War. The reparations put on Germany, the punishments put on Germany, and the loss of territory. And I heard a historian once said these are like legitimate gripes the German people have from the Treaty of Versailles. And if it wasn't Adolf Hitler, and you don't get his idiosyncrasies, like Nazism and all that, somebody else would have filled that vacuum. Oh, Had not been, do you think somebody else would have filled that vacuum if it wasn't Hitler?
2: Yeah, I think they were in a situation where there was a lot of tension and anger over the Treaty of Versailles, and the economic situation, they were desperate in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm.
0: And it's funny where it starts, I mean, I'm gonna talk about this later, but when they meet in the rail car with Ferdinand Foch, and the Allied powers, and the Germans, the Germans basically look at the deal before it starts, and remember, they're surrendering on French soil still. They're not in Germany yet. The ceasefire is still on their on French soil, and Foch is pretty much like, yeah, I don't really care. Uh, we're going to stick it to you type of thing. Now, the treaty Foch was had different opinion on, but that's a story from another time. Another thing that we kind of got into was the second thing you should know about the First World War is it created the new peril of modern warfare and it ended the romantic ideas about that. I kind of spoke to that a little bit. But when you have industrialized nation states going to war, it, World War I took the Industrial Revolution, took industrialized countries, took capitalism, took all the wealth of all those nations and spent four years ratcheting up the societies into killing people and took the, those economies and took those things into basically a killing field to just wipe out massive numbers of young men. And the disease that it caused before, and uh, not before, excuse me, during and after the war too. Um, we saw in World War One what modern nation states can do to modern nation states. Before that, warfare was very limited. It was mostly the age of colonial warfare too, where if you have the industrial nation versus the colonized people, Death tolls are not that high. War is a game. War can be "quote unquote" fun.
1: Not a lot of, not a lot of
0: the big boys going head to head. No. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it, the civil. It's it's surprising that they didn't see this kind of coming from wars like the Civil War, where you see the end of the Civil War is a lot of parallels to the First World War. Uh, Greg Morales is going to be smiling when I say that. But then you look at the Franco-Prussian War, right? There's two modernized industrial states going at it. The war is over in about a year because of general uh, German leadership. So the time for the death tolls isn't really there. And there's only two major powers involved in that one. Um, So I think that's something people really should know is it brought modern industrial nation states uh, to the fray and ended those romantic ideals of warfare that I don't think will ever return. I think some people probably still see war that way, but I think when the bullets start flying, it probably goes away pretty quickly. I also
1: think, I mean... I guess something else that people should know about the First World War. I don't know if you have it on your list there, but uh, the idea of the creation of the modern Middle East right, and it's is, there. is 100%. Well, let's skip be- down to that then. I'll yeah, skip oh, down to on that one. You got another one?
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to skip down to the modern okay, Middle I'm East on. right now. Um, yeah. Matt, go ahead, take it away.
1: So just the the demise of the Ottoman Empire, right, in the Middle East. And the fact that everybody understands that that the Middle East has always been fought over, whether it was for religious reasons during the Crusades, whether it's for economic reasons, right, during the, the Age of Trade, the Islamic Golden Age, right. But the reality is that a, an Islamic power has controlled the Middle East for... Almost a thousand years. What's well, a idea address? Right. Yeah, right. And so they they are controlling and flourishing, and everybody has always wanted the that land. Like I said, whether it be for religious or economic reasons, and now that land is up for grabs because the Ottoman Empire gets involved in World War One, and meets its demise. Right, the Ottoman Empire ceases to exist during World War One, and now all this coveted land that that has been fought over for centuries is now essentially in the possession of colonial powers, France and Britain. Mm -hmm. And the decision on what to do with that land, how do you consider the people who live there versus the economic and religious interests of other groups around the world, people who feel like they have an entitlement to that land or entitlement to the resources that exist in that land, and really the, the emergence of many of the modern problems that we see in the Middle East today start there not saying that they're caused 100 percent by european intervention or anything like that but like you said power vacuums right when a a large power falls and anybody who's ever taken my global two class is probably laughing right now because power vacuums are like my favorite thing to talk about because they're a recurring theme and whenever any major regime changes there's going to be a power vacuum and there's essentially been a power vacuum in the middle east since the end of World War one. Yeah. And a ruler rises and if somebody doesn't like them, they get rid of them and another one exists. And it's never stopped it's really never stopped since 1918. Should were going to add to that?
2: Well, I was just going to also say I saw a lot of power vacuum mentioned in essays from Mr. Hunter's students last yeah, year. Um, I definitely think that there's a lot of resentment that is still in the Middle East because of the terms of you know how World War One ended mm-hmm. and even like some issues today like not you know issues like terrorism and things like that they'll cite you know, the European involvement in that region, some terrorist organizations. So yeah. So it definitely had long-lasting impact.
0: Just to piggyback off what Sheena said, you have two major documents that come out of that war. Um, the first being the Balfour Declaration, which was leaked uh, with in late war time period to suggest that the British and the Allies were open to establishing a homeland for Israel. So that that's one of the big... and. Let's face it, that's one of the major conflicts that dominates the second half of the 20th century. The Arab-Israeli conflict yeah. dominates the mid and yep. late. And the essence of that century. is born in the ashes of World War I. 100%. The other one is the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which uh, is a meeting between a French and a British diplomat, um, Marx, Mark Sykes and uh, georges Uh Towards the end of the war, in which they appear to be dividing up the Middle East for the spoils of the war. It's leaked when the Soviet Union rises at the end of the war, which there's another one we're going to get to. And uh, so that's kind of leaked later on in the war. Sykes-Picot has been cited by ISIS and other groups as like European dominance. Now, the debate over how much Sykes-Picot really should be to blame is that's up for an argument, especially because you have a lot of active people in the Middle East. Um, we spent a large t- portion of our class about how you have uh, Lawrence of Arabia there with, uh, with oh my gosh, it might, it's escaped me, with Faisal and... Um, uh, the Sharif, and the names are just Ibn Saud. Ibn Saud, Saudi, Ibn right, Saud is another one, and how these guys are also vying for their own kingdom. So it really isn't just all the European powers. Um, there's the 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 Arab players are there, very similar to we kind of compare it to Native Americans, in the United States. They're not passive; they are active players in this whole thing. Oh well, yeah, the I mean the Jordanian, the current Jordanian
1: royal yep. family emerged. Mm-hmm. From the ashes of World War I and got their kingdom in Jordan from this time period of splitting up that. that. So, I mean, even that is, is a lasting example yeah. of how the fall of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I mm-hmm. has direct ties to, to
0: the Middle East and its structure today. Yeah, in modern Turkey. One hundred percent, right out World War One. So I just realized that kind of merged something. So the first thing we said that you should know about World War One is it sets up the Second World War. The second thing was uh, creating the n- the new peril of modern warfare, ending the romanticism about it, and I combined that with ushering in the modern day by taking industrialized nations to war. So actually, we have four things. So you got ended romanticism, sets up Second World War. Modern nation states go to war and establish the modern Middle East. There's four things you need to know about World War I. We got two more for you. Uh, ended European dominance of the world and brought the USA as the top power in. Uh, I heard some Dan Carlin in Hardcore History. I feel like I pillaged so much from him I feel bad about this. He compared it to like a vacuum. There you go, Matt, vacuums. <laughs> a vacuum from London sucking out all of the old wealth from europe because the british are the ones that underwrite the first two years of the war pretty much along the french by the time they go broke the americans are the ones underwriting the allies oh. and the, the wealth is just being pulled from london to new york and by the end of the war the financial center of the world goes from london to new york which resource was it that we were looking at i
1: can't oh, remember. It was the debt
0: it was from um it was from a foreign foreign affairs magazine published it like in 19, the 1920s, and it was all about basically how are we going to get paid back yeah. for all of this uh, these expenditures in the war. The One writer referred to the um, United States as a country of war profiteers. That's not entirely wrong Has if you changed? think about it. That's a topic for another day. As a topic for another day, <laughs> for another day yeah. Right, being a war profiteer. But
1: I was also thinking about that that kind of ties in with the downfall of European dominance. Oh, well, I is directly should, should related go back to, that. to to World War One. Yeah. And the fact that I was thinking of the resource where we read that even at the end of the day the
0: winners would be losers. Do you remember that? Oh, it um, was oh it was a book that was written it was called The Great Illusion. And it was written in nineteen oh eight ish early nineteen hundreds. Before the war even broke out. And they this guy this guy I cannot remember his name, he pretty much argued that the victor shall suffer with the vanquished. Right. So modern nation states will, will never go to war. Well, he, he, he's like, oh, they'll never do it because why would they screw up all this it's great a wealth lose, they lose have? Situation. Right. And he was right, but he was wrong. He was definitely right about the fact that the victor suffered with the vanquished, but he was wrong about the fact that they never, would they would go, to never war. go to war. Right? Um,
1: never underestimate the stupidity
0: of people who are power driven. Well, I mean, I'm going to talk about that. Europe has like some of the worst leadership in h- its history. At that point, and at that point,
1: that's very
0: true. Um, but it ended European dominance. We never see Europe rise again the way that it was. I mean, in in 1914, the United States. Somebody compared the United States to having the amount of like power on the world stage. I mean, definitely a regional player in the Western Hemisphere, but not really an international on player to a stage. super ex- extreme. Um, which is why there's jingles in the United States clamoring for that because they want us to be like Europe, but there's not this great drive for it. Um, and Europe Europe really was the, the top of the world. And in 1918, it's just not the case uh, anymore yeah. because the victors suffered with the vanquished. Um, and then the last thing, so there's five things you need to know about. Well, we're on the sixth one, and I'm going to kind of take a step back on this one because my global, um, my global colleagues should be able to speak more to this than I can, but it sets up the Soviet Union and the Cold War, which dominates... Essentially, the second part of the 20th century after World War II. 100. So. Like
2: you said, um, the, so- the United States obviously gained a lot of power, and um, at the end of World War One, um, and setting up the Soviet Union for the Cold War, I think that it kind of put them in a place of power. I was going into Cold War after World War Two. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're
1: fine. No, no, it's fine. Yeah, the uh, the idea that. Uh, the fall of the Tsar in Russia is directly tied to World War I, right? Like, Vladimir Lenin comes on the stage, which, I mean, we might as well mention the fact that the Germans sent him back
0: to Russia. Yeah, the Germans the put him in the train car with gonna, a bunch of money and yeah. just say...
1: And guards, and guards, and don't let and this don't guy out until well, he they get into they Russia. See him,
0: they see him as a disease. Yeah. Well, because
1: he's full of socialism. He's a Marxist, right? Uh, and he, he is a pure Marxist, which more would be he he's a communist, mm-hmm. clearly a communist. Um, and so they want him out of Germany. And they're more than happy to send them him back uh, to Russia, who's already experiencing some internal strife, uh, has already had a few uprisings. Because, let's face it, I mean, Russia is getting embarrassed. Schlecht embarrassed in yeah. World War 1 they had just been embarrassed by the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War and so Russia is essentially ripe for the picking and the Germans yeah send send Lenin with some money and a bunch of guards and say don't let this guy out until he gets back to Russia well he gets there and he just fuels the fire of the common people in Russia who are clamoring for them to get out of World War 1 a, a war that arguably they might be the cause of mm-hmm. And they probably never should have been involved in in the first place. And now this ultimately causes the fall of the Tsar, the fall of the, ro- the royal family. Now, do I think that the Tsar would have continued, like a monarchy would have continued in Russia? No, but but do I believe that communism would have taken hold in Russia with the fall of the Tsar if it had gone a little differently, if it hadn't been World War One? the czar eventually would lose power just because of really his sheer inability to rule. Yeah. Um, but, but you probably have a democratic state rising you get, up. I mean, anytime, a lot of times you see these kinds of things. Usually countries end up some kind of republic, at least
0: trying some kind of republic before they go. But there's always that saying in Russia that <coughs> Russia needs a czar. Russia does. And that, that, that's, that's the, you know, that's... Um, but it didn't have to be... It, it could have been something else. could have been the... Ro- maybe, right. maybe Russia turns fascist. Maybe they have a fascist dictator without Lenin. Because Marx himself thought that Russia was the last place you would see communism. He thought it'd be in a very industrialized place, um, which makes more sense. I mean, France and Germany have way more socialists before the war starts than Russia. Well, the interesting part,
1: and I mean again, this is a topic for another time I want to talk about communism versus capitalism, but very few the places where communism was designed to work, right? It and and really came out of the Industrial Revolution. The countries that are still holding on to it today Mm -hmm. were the least industrialized and they stayed the least industrialized until they started easing their communist their their (laughs) communist ideals because nobody wants to invest money in industry in a country where the government gets all the profit right so very very interesting that communism is born in Mm -hmm. russia but i don't think you can argue i don't it's very difficult to argue that if world war one doesn't happen Vladimir Lenin doesn't start communism in Russia, yep. and it doesn't become the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. which ultimately you could argue the effects of Stalin, right? the purges, the Cold War. is very different. Very, very, very different if communism doesn't take root
0: in Russia slash the Soviet Union as a result of World War One. So a uh, good segue to the next point, there's six things you need to know about the First World War. Uh, what is the biggest misconception of the First World War? I wrote down some talking points for us to get started with. Um, was the first World War inevitable? There's a big, big push that World War I was inevitable. These countries were on a path to it. Do you guys think World War I was inevitable?
2: I don't know if on the scale that it was, it was inevitable. I think there was definitely, it was, it was going to be some type of conflict because of the, the tension in the Balkan Peninsula, but I don't know on the scale that it was. It, it had to be that, that devastating
1: yeah that's a great point i mean the tensions in the balkan peninsula i mean things have been going crazy in the balkan peninsula
0: for a while bismarck sounded I mean, like the 1880s right 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 but <laughs>
1: some some damn thing foolish thing in, in the, the balkans. balkans will start the next great war right and that's in in the 1870s 1880s right so obviously that was i think unavoidable but again going back to that idea of russia causing and and czar nicholas causing his own problems he did not have to come to the backing of the Serbs, right? Mm-hmm. He did mm-hmm. not have to come to the backing of the Serbs. Arguably, the British didn't have to come to the backing of the Russians and the French. Well, and the British could negotiate the whole thing in the Balkans before like they had. Correct. And they chose to set it Correct. out with their hands. Uh, set their hands. So a lot of that, a lot of that, I believe, I do believe could have been avoided. Do I think that... It, a massive world war was inevitable, no. But I definitely Mm -hmm. agree with Sheena in the fact that some kind of conflict was inevitable and it needed to be handled so that it wasn't like a recurring right. issue that was going to keep coming up, assassination after assassination. Yeah,
0: I, I agree with both of you. I, I do not think World War One was, inevit- was inevitable in 1914 especially. I think that's the key too. There's some theories to suggest there were, and there's a lot of weight to that. But Europe, it, at the time it needed its best leadership, was saddled with some of the worst leaders in its history. Um, the Kaiser, Boom. example one. Very, very weak leader, Tsar Nicholas. Two and let's face it, as far as the major powers go, they're the two on the. I mean, if I we had, we ranked, I believe, the powers in another episode. Um, I put the Austro-Hungarians and the Serbs right up there because the Serbs are poking the Austrians. The Austrians want to squash them, and then both their big brothers are Germany and Russia, and they kind of drag them in. The big brothers at no point. I mean, let's imagine you got an argument with your big brothers. Right? Two little brothers are fighting. The big brother should say, guys, you're acting really immature. Let's figure this out. Right, Instead of like, oh, we're going to get involved too. So the, or the or big, smack your, your little brother on the top of the head. Or right? And, that's and that's and the, being an idiot. Well, because the Germans look looking at the Russians and saying, oh, by 1920, they're going to be a world power. They're going to be able to kick our butts. So let's do it now. The Russians are like, well, we just want to get over that whole Russo-Japanese war syndrome we've had. Um, well, Let's talk about the interesting part about those being the two weakest leaders,
1: and they just so happen to be related, right? Yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah well, <laughs> in Britain,
0: Britain is the other one. That's true. Uh, yeah, that's 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 well, piece you just said
1: they should have negotiated and they didn't. Yeah, I, I mean,
0: there's some interesting pieces there. So, yeah, we can all kind of agree that was not inevitable. I think the second biggest misconception of World War I is that it wasn't all trench warfare, right? The first year of the war, 1914. Pretty much open warfare. It doesn't look that different than the Civil War. With machine guns and modern artillery. And then That's 1918... Scary. Also, excuse me. 1918, at the end, last year the war, is also out of the trenches. Right. Tanks. And, and it's tanks. And it looks almost like pre-prototypical Blitzkrieg. It's mm-hmm. an all-arms war. Right. Advocating with, you know, planes, machine guns, and everything. So, um... There's a conception that it's all trench warfare and and it's it's almost like stalemate all the time and that's not really the case. Um, and it's not a coincidence that 1914 the casualties are the highest and 1918 the casualties are the highest. It's actually the trenches that save a lot of life, as weird as that sounds, in the middle years of the war.
2: Uh, going along with trench warfare, you guys might be able to you know have more information about this. But there's kind of my students. Kind of had this question of like, how long were the guys in the trenches? Am oh, I like, yeah. right that they didn't stay there? No, for they cycled long them out. time, they would cycle them in. Yeah. So it wasn't like the whole war; they were right in the front line trenches. There was a process to cycle them in, and, and
0: there's a there's a big debate as to what's worse, okay, being cycled out or staying okay. there. Like they talk about the friendship at done. Yeah, and it's right. like if you, it was like an eight day cycle or something like that. But if you're if you're there, right, and you get to leave and go on leave. You don't go back. It's almost like that thought of going back is worse. Like, the soldiers okay. are like, don't, just leave me there. Just leave me there. Don't. Okay. There's almost, so that's, that's something the soldiers actually talk a lot about. Okay. In their, in their diaries, which is, I don't know, I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine being there, having to leave, and then knowing you have to go back to that. That well, would be awful. Because here's the deal.
1: It's like this in any, any conflict or combat, right? Especially when you're new. Into the military, I can remember you know flying out, getting prepared to go you know deploy uh, to a combat zone, and the military does a really good job of rah-rahing and getting you like all hoorah up, you know, and and ready to go and do what you got to do. But once you've been into that experience, you get battle fatigued, right? And you're you're used to living in that area of operation you're used to living in that environment mm-hmm. it's not what you thought it was going to be but you deal with it cuz you have to you almost forget about the comforts of home mm-hmm. when you're in that situation being exposed to the comforts of home for just that brief time although it is a reprieve right it had to i couldn't imagine when i was when i was deployed i, I never I wasn't gone. I was only gone for about nine months. So I didn't have the opportunity uh, to be, thankfully, gone long enough to have a break in the middle and come back, right? But I do know, right, Mm -hmm. that John was...
2: Oh, yeah, that was the worst. He left around Thanksgiving, and then April, he came home on leave and was home for two weeks. And, yeah, by the end of that two weeks, it's like right i I couldn't
1: imagine having to get myself the the level of hoorahness will say right (laughs) when you leave to go back after you've already been there is significantly different than it was on your first trip out yeah because you know now what you're going back
0: to that's and i'm happy you both can provide firsthand insight to that that's huge um the next piece I want to just kind of brief on this one. The next one, uh, biggest miscon—our big misconception of World War One is the generals were butchers. They didn't understand what they were doing, and they just didn't care about the lives that were lost. That's a huge conception. Uh, is often, there's a joke that—not a joke, but or a, a remark that a German general made—that the British fight like lions, uh, and then his colleague said to him, "Well, lucky for us, they're led by donkeys." Um, I I'm definitely a pushback against that narrative. Peter Hart in his book The Great War spends like f- almost the whole book at different points arguing that that wasn't the case. Um, these guys were born in the 1850s and 60s, yet using modern industrial technology. What did you think was going to happen? Right, they were leading what was the military thought of the time, right? Right, and the they're just experimenting. And so, and Peter Hart talks about this: it, what works on Monday. Then the Germans figure something out to stop what you did new, and then it doesn't work on Friday. You know, he talked about that in a, an interview he did, and I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of it that way. So I mean, I think that they're just like experimenting best as they can, um, because there is a big conception. These guys are just butchers, and they don't care about human life.
1: Yeah, it's that idea
0: again. The idea of the new warfare being completely. It's a science. Foreign to everybody. It turns into a science. Absolutely. It used to be just guts and glory, and now it's no. This is right. not how Planning, we do things anymore. Strategy,
1: logistics. One hundred percent. Logistics is something that I don't think people
0: understand. The, mm-hmm. the logistics that it takes to, to fight a war. Army marches on the stomach. Yeah. And then the last misconception about uh, the First World War is that it's 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 just a springboard to World War Two, and that's all it is. Um, and I think we spent a lot of the last segment where we talked about the six things you need to know. We almost just proved our argument that World War One is not merely a springboard to the Second World War. It is a separate conflict. I would argue the most important event of the 20th century um, because of what it, it sets up and establishes. Um, so we won't spend any more time on that. We kind of
1: already... You can argue, that
0: too. too, that, I mean, honestly,
1: it's the opposite of a springboard to World War Two. Mm-hmm. Is World War Two even really a separate war? I mean, you could get no. Into it's a just whole, one long. It's co- just one yeah. long giant. And I agree. It's a twenty-year with with halftime with a twenty-year right, halftime. Yeah. Exactly.
0: So, uh, my my colleagues will be leaving me here in a minute as we get into some of the Armistice stuff that I'll take you through. Uh, but I want to ask them one final question. And why is remembering World War One so crucial? Uh, Sheena, we'll start with you.
2: I think it just shows us how quickly things can escalate you think that things are somewhat stable and somewhat modern and then you know with a couple couple decisions and people joining in it just progressively gets worse and how peace is kind of fragile and we have to be aware of you know diplomacy and trying to figure out um how to handle conflict the other thing is like all the World War One vets are no longer around, mm-hmm. and we're, keep, we're moving on and on forward, and it's kind of becoming more abstract because we don't have a bunch of videos of it. We don't have, you know, as many sources as we do with modern technology, so it's really important to understand it and be able to to relate to some of those things and not have it be lost in history.
0: You make the best points. <laughs> I, I, I just Those are things that my mind is never on, and... The first one, how quickly things can spiral out of control. Like, right. JFK had all his guys read The Guns of August when it came out. Barbara talking about the first months of the war and how quickly things spiral out of control because, like, I don't want this to happen. Right. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And they kept referencing The Guns of August the whole time. And it's so, yeah, she that was awesome. Matt. What was the... the Why is it it so crucial? No,
1: no, I was thinking about the the second point, again, going back to Sheena making good points. The idea that there aren't as many sources, I think that actually kind of ties into why everybody thinks about and remembers mm-hmm. World War II yeah, over World yeah. War One is because even in our modern day, there are very few World War II vets left, mm-hmm. but there's way more video yeah. evidence. There's way yeah. movies are... How many movies? Let's compare. I got to see that, movies? by the way, you got to see that Peter Jackson movie. You've seen the previous Oh that. my gosh, I just <laughs> saw it I'm sorry. I'm so, sorry. It it so excited incredible. to get us off track, but it, <laughs> it looks, looks amazing. Incredible. Go ahead. <laughs> but the idea that there is... So much more modern footage because of technology from World War II than World War One. It's more entertaining to teach That's about true. World War II. Movies are yeah. made about World War II. And also, I, those are all kind of tied in together. It's more attractive. Right. Right. It just is. So I think that the the main reason to, to worry or to remember World War One is I, I don't think that any major... <laughs> Any major conflict that affects your nation, I don't think should ever be forgotten, regardless of how how small it is, right? Any, Any conflict that you are involved in means something to somebody, right? And to think that an entire generation of families that were affected by this... Can be shuffled to the background, right? I would hope that you know my grandfather is a Korean war vet, right? I would hope that once the the they age out and and unfortunately they're all gone, that we still remember the Korean War, right? And Korea had even less impacts on the world than World War One does. Mm-hmm. So why is it so important to remember? Number one, just simply because it, it affected people, and there are people living today that it does affect, whether those people are. are Obviously, weren't veterans of the World War of World War One, but they were related to or new World War One veterans, right? That are now having their families impacted. Secondly, I just think that the effects that we talked about, those big six things, mm-hmm. they're everywhere, yep. right? And if you don't understand to me, again, I know I always come back to the Middle East. It's kind of my I have the most experience. Well, it's where with we're living day, right, right now, right? Yeah. So. You cannot truly understand the, the problems in the Middle East and be, I don't want to say empathetic, but you can't, you can't understand what's going on in a place if you don't know the root cause of why it's happening. Mm-hmm. And so, so many people are quick to judge, quick to jump on board with all of these different ideals about an area. But until you really genuinely understand where the cause of all of the stress and strife is. And you can dial that back even before World War I, but the reality is that for almost a thousand years, the Middle East right, was able to sustain itself, be one of the most wealthy and prosperous and really successful areas of the world where some of the largest empire, some of the greatest learning, some of the most knowledge of the world came out of that area, and to now view it as this area that is just full of people who are in conflict and full of all of these things. Yes, it is true for today, but you need to understand why it's like that and where those root causes are. It's not all on Europe. It's not all on the Middle East, but you have to understand that it, it
0: is all on World War One. right? <laughs> it's all on the human race. Right. And, and that's kind of what I'm, I, why I think World War I is so crucial. I don't think you can understand the human narrative and the human story without understanding World War One. Definitely not. I, I, there's so much human emotion and human strife and decisions and pieces of that conflict that show us so much about ourselves in the first World War. Well, and the consequences of just following sheer... Yeah. human desire from from the top of the war with the decisions and the alliances and the militarism to the bottom of, to the middle of what the guys went through and from the, how the decisions of, of the general affect the average person I, I just don't think there's a, a better conflict to help us understand who we are as a, as a species and a race. Than the First World War. I don't think there's a better uh, learning ground. So with that being said, uh, thank you to my two colleagues for joining me today. Uh, now, unfortunately, listeners, you're going to have to listen to me explain some pretty crazy stuff about Armists to stay in the final hours of the war. So thank you guys.
2: Thank you. I learned a lot talking to you guys. Thanks.
0: Thanks for having us. i say thanks to my colleagues again for the uh, the first half of that episode. That was great. Bouncing ideas off each other like that is, is the best way that we like to format this podcast. Um, but now unfortunately you get to listen just to my voice uh, as I take you through the kind of like the, the final hours of the war and Some of the things we want to get across to you We like to think wars wear down towards the end, but World War one on the other hand Ramped up completely some of the worst casualties of the war the most amounts of death will happen in 1918 as things open back up again like they were in 1914 in particular The United States, which I'm going to pay special attention to, took some of their worst casualties at the end of the war. The United States really is not fully involved in World War I until late summer, I say early summer 1918, and then throughout that fall as they approached the armistice on November 11th at the end of the war. But by late summer, early fall of 1918, where we're at in the war, to give you some context, the Germans had their last gasp of early spring offensives and sort of their last punch to try to win the war. Before the United States, to have any significant amount of troops there. Um, in the spring of 1918, a number of offensives that really were just devastating to the Allies. And the Germans gained a ton of ground. Uh, and the general in the high command, uh, people like Eric Ludendorff and Paul von Hindenburg, understood this was Germany's last effort, their last gasp. Before, uh, if, if they were going to win the war, it was now or never, basically. They could not continue to go on with the, the Allied blockade by the British Supply is running low. They'd already knocked Russia out of the war at this point So the Germans are really trying to end the war Get the best uh, the best deal possible and see where they could come out at the end of it In particular the German home front was completely beaten down the British blockade had done so much damage and there's a lot of estimates on blockade deaths uh, in the war for the Germans, but there's really no way to know for certain. Um, we I'll have the civilian casualties for you for the whole war by the end of the episode. But there were socialist move- uh, movements and communist movements popping up in Germany. Germany had a large population of socialist um, socialist rhetoric prior to the war, and even in the early years. That you know, I mean, Marx himself, Karl Marx was German. Friedrich Engels. Uh, there's really kind of the the early nest of socialism and communism. And the German home front being so beaten down, everything going towards this war effort, and women in particular, there's there's riots over over the prices of bread and certain goods that you know um, Germany has just been going through things in the home front that other European countries, unless you're Russia, had not had to go through. Maybe a Serbia, uh, certainly the United States, Britain, and France were not experiencing the kinds of things that Germany and Russia was, in large part due to that British blockade, that that strangle like strategy that was just. Uh, slowly wearing Germany down to the end of the war. In particular, last few months of the war, Peter Hart called it uh, Armageddon-like. He compared it to the you know Armageddon, the end. Uh, in August to November of 1918, Peter Hart's a British historian, but he talks about how 1.2 million men served in the British Expeditionary Force, and 360,000 of those became casualties. That's astonishing in not even a year of warfare. Uh, It's just murderous open warfare tanks in the open artillery in the open I can't imagine being one of these guys if i've made it through the trenches of you know 1915 16 17 To make it to 1918 and basically be told we're going out in the open Especially if i've if i've survived the german uh, Offenses of 1918 already I couldn't imagine that kind of warfare and uh, all these generals are still learning but really the end of World War I 1918, you're beginning to see early World War II tactics, early forms of blitzkrieg with tanks, airplanes. Uh, they've come for a long way in this war. Uh, machine guns, all sorts of things, just the modern war. The German leaders, back to their perspective, Hindenburg and Ludendorff and others, really hoped for an armistice and end of the fighting temporarily and saw it as, as a necessity by October. Um, The black day of the of the German army was in the summer already as Ludendorff called it. It was really clear that Germany after their offensives, kind of petered out they really really wanted to hold on as much territory as possible and try to um, Get the best peace deal they could But their hopes were to carry the war on into 1919 uh, Carry it on one more year get the best peace deal possible or get that that most favorable peace in 1918 However, the Allies, on the other hand, had no illusions of that, especially the French and the British. They've invested so much in this war, lost so many men, that they wanted nothing but an absolute victory. The United States is a little bit divided. The United States military sides with the British and the French. They want that absolute victory. They really want to see Germany crushed. Whereas Woodrow Wilson is kind of the wild card in this whole thing. He's the President of the United States at the time. He's the guy that kept the U.S. completely neutral Uh, the beginning of the war while really underwriting the Allied cause and clearly playing, uh, you know, being neutral only in name, not in action, supplying the Allied powers uh, the entire time. And so he really wants to see the best peace deal possible, and we'll kind of get into sort of what he wants. Sort of give you a timeline here for the German leadership. Uh, Erich Ludendorff is really the one pulling the strings along with Hindenburg. But it's mostly Ludendorff. He's a wonderful general. His star rose quite quickly in 1914 in Belgium, and then uh, basically knocking out Russia in the east. So he really is seen as the the, the great German, uh, the great German leader. And he loses his son um, late in the war and begins to kind of suffer some mental breakdowns. And he'll actually resign the command on October 26, 1918. Uh, Before that, Bulgaria, another uh, central power German ally, dropped out on September 30th. The Ottoman Turks, uh, four days after Ludendorff's resignation on October 30th, quit the war as well, surrender. And then the the real real black day here is that Austria-Hungary agrees to their ceasefire on November 3rd. And that really signals that Germany's just done. Um, there's no real way they can win this war. They're still fighting on soil they've taken, which is a big part of the afterwar narrative we'll get into with Adolf Hitler, but they're not, they're not on German soil yet. They're still fighting on foreign soil, and that's a big, big piece of this conversation. Now, all this fighting that is taking place at the end of the war, since we had a static front for much of the war, is taking place in war-torn areas that have been fought over for four years. Uh, the Germans have booby-trapped them, um, and there's just so much carnage that, excuse me, if you're a soldier fighting in this area, you are living with the, the bodies and the, the, uh, the carnage from 1914, 1915, 1916, 1917, and now 1918. Um, the trenches are a place of absolute just death and this 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 piece of Europe will never be the same You can see the scars of the war today You go look at pictures of Verdun the Somme. You will see massive craters You'll see that they're pulling up ordnance from World War one still all over France and Belgium uh, Europe was never the same it still isn't we talked about in the earlier segments how some poor farmer will find these massive ordnance that did explode on his property uh, every now and then and unfortunately sometimes become a victim the scars of the war are everywhere, and I couldn't imagine being a soldier going through, you know, if I'm somebody that's made it through a long portion of the war, going through these areas I might have been, uh, going through these areas where I might have lost friends, going through areas I may have even been wounded in. You have to imagine the kind of psychological game this plays on a soldier. Not only is the warfare changed in 1918, where we're at here at the end of the war, but Going through all of these places that you may have already been and just the areas themselves Go read any kind of world war one account One from gallipoli still sticks out uh, gallipoli being in in the middle east not in the european theater But a lot of similarities the trenches having a spring-like feeling from the bodies Uh, The amount of flies being in the trench the size of the rats um, The fact that while digging for sandbags oftentimes soldiers would uncover bodies The horrors these guys live with every day were just astounding Kind of back to the big picture The Germans are hoping to get the, the deal that Woodrow Wilson lays out in January of 1918 Which is the 14 points The 14 points was the best deal the Germans could really hope for If the Allies would agree to stick to what Woodrow Wilson wanted Woodrow Wilson For as much of his faults really was correct in a lot of his aspects of uh, The 14 points Some of them, I mean some of it might be a little idealistic uh, Saying not realistic We actually had students examine that last year. But it had some very favorable peace ideals for the Germans. For example, um, some things made a lot of sense. One of them was self-determination, the idea that people have the the right to choose their government that they want. Uh, Woodrow Wilson wanted to apply this to the Balkans, where this whole dang thing started, as Otto von Bismarck would say. Um, And elsewhere, too, the creation of independent Poland's Polish state, which happens at the end of the war, which is another major change. Uh, Some of the other things, though... Not so much. Uh, Freedom of the seas. The idea that even during times of war that the sea should be a free place. That's something Woodrow Wilson desired. That's not something he's going to get. Um, But the Germans look at Woodrow Wilson's plan and say, okay, I'd like to negotiate with the Americans. I'd like to negotiate with Woodrow Wilson. That's the best peace deal they can get. Now, in the East, they've already knocked out Russia. They've already gotten the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which gave them tons of tracts of land in Russia and in the East, Um, They probably would lose it under Woodrow Wilson with the whole self-determination thing, but they can live with that at that point. The Germans are trying to get the best deal possible, basically coming to the table saying, look, we're still on French and Belgian soil. We're still here. We're not a defeated army. We should get some kind of decent deal. Whether or not that's going to happen is, remains to be seen from their eyes. Um, but Britain and France really want no part of a lot of what Woodrow Wilson has to say. They've paid a heavy price. I'll get to the casualties later. Um, their wealth has been drained from their countries. I mean, the French, for God's sakes, have lost in the, in the first couple of weeks of the war. In three days, they lose 75,000 men killed. Not just casualties, killed. 250,000 casualties total. Boom. That's more men than the British sent over in the beginning of the war. Okay, in the Battle of the Frontiers with Germany, the, the Germans and, and um, excuse me, the French and the British are not really willing to sit there and forgive the Germans and allow uh, Woodrow Wilson to sweep in when, the, when they see it as the Americans haven't sacrificed that much and don't really deserve the same place at the negotiating table as the British and the French have. They're really looking to make sure Germany cannot do this again, cripple them as much as possible. Back to Germany. Besides the socialist elements uh, taking hold in in German civilian life, you have the German Navy that is going to go into mutiny towards the end of the war. Some in the German high command want to send uh, this excellent German Navy, by the way, who was built up enough to challenge the British on kind of like a final ride, almost as like a final play to see if they can knock out enough British ships, maybe break the blockade. And the German Navy sees that the war might be coming to an end and says, not me i'm not doing that and they actually mutiny and actually uh there's a lot of socialist propaganda even in the navy for the germans at the time so you really even seeing the early uh soviet union here take hold and later on the cold war so they're not and, and german soldiers in general are not really willing to go on any offensives not that germany's in a position to do so but they're going to defend and they're not going to let the allies get into into um, germany but they're not going to be going on any attacks anytime soon, and they're not listening to their officers with the same amount of authority that they would have early in the war. So by November 10th, three days after initial talks uh, opened between the Allies and the Central Powers, the Ke- Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, abdicates and leaves the throne of Germany, fleeing to the Netherlands. Uh, the official abdication, though, did not come until the 28th. So by that point, it's very clear how this thing is going to shake out uh, by November 10th, even after negotiations opened early on November 8th. All This time this these things have been coming up uh, are happening. People are still dying The initials talks opened uh, somewhere in the time period from November 7th and November 8th mostly November 8th 1918 more on that later But but people are dying up into the last minutes of the war and I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of drive that point home With some casualty numbers, but I've talked a lot about Europe I want to get to the US perspective and this surprising story that I didn't even know a whole lot about from the U.S. perspective, John Pershing, he's the head of the American Expeditionary Force, John Blackjack Pershing, very illustrious military career, a military man through and through, and similar to France and, uh, and Britain, he wants to crush Germany. Um, you see this, military guys want to go in there, they want to win it. Uh, MacArthur was similar, he didn't want to use the atomic bomb in World War II. He's one of those guys that's a tough, hard-nosed gentleman, wants to go in, wants to win this thing the right way so this doesn't happen again. The main example of this, and this is where we get into the crux of the conversation with the armistice, Pershing orders the crossing of the Meuse River, and, and I wish I could put orders in quotation marks, orders the crossing of the Meuse River, which is just after the main Argonne offensive has happened in 1918 in the fall, on the evening of November 10th. Now, if we understand we pointed out, November 11th is Armistice Day. That's the day the firing stops. He wants to order the crossing of the Meuse River on November 10th, well into the morning of November 11th, which is the day that the ceasefire will take place. A year later, Pershing and other officers will come under fire, pardon the pun, not a very good one, for being part of this. They'll go through congressional hearings and have, uh, you know, be on the hot seat for this. And I'm gonna get into some of the figures now, but the families are gonna have some questions as to why this happened. Pershing in his testimony claims that he really didn't know the extent of the armistice and wanted to keep the heat up on the Germans till the very end Now there's some absolute truth to that and I'm not trying to tarnish the reputation of Pershing or other any other American general here but Foch. The Supreme Allied Commander, Ferdinand Foch, who was a huge French general, um, did tell the Allies, we want the heat on the Germans till the very end to get the best deal possible to end this war. Totally understandable strategy. Um, to what extent that we can look at what happened here in 1918 in the Meuse River with the Americans, I don't know. We'll have to kind of sort through this, and that's kind of for you to decide. But Pershing was very clear that he did not understand the armistice negotiations and what extent the the ceasefire would be if the fire would would resume. That is probably a bit of an, um, I don't want to use the word fallacy, but a little bit of a beating around the bush of Pershing. Pershing knew full well what that armistice was going to entail and what position the Germans were in. History has really shown us that. I'll take it to Armistice Day. November 11th, and officers were notified in the American Army around between 5 and 6 a.m. that an agreement was signed, but that it uh, was not going to take effect until 11 a.m., the 11th day, the 11th hour, where we get that expression from. This leaves a lot of wiggle room uh, for officers to sort of go with the flow and see what they're going to do. Now, some officers chose to keep their men safe. In fact, uh, the la- a large number of American officers and British and French said, we realize where we're at. Let's just not do anything dumb these last few hours and get to the ceasefire. But you also have officers who are looking for reputation, looking for glory, and particularly Americans have not been there that long, and they're going to use this time for that. Now, crossings of the muse, were continuing through this whole time. To give you some numbers now, the U.S. sustained 1,100 casualties in the few last hours of the war, with around 320 of those being deaths. Not the last day alone, there's more than that. I'm talking the last few hours, 320 deaths. In the full 24 hours before the end of the war, there were approximately 3,000 total U.S. casualties. The muse, what happened was you had a bunch of bottlenecks. Um, they had to, The Marines had to cross this river and, on these pontoons and it basically creates choke points that the Germans could put their machine guns on, and it turned out to not go very well for the Americans. And as you can see, you know, we're looking at 1,100 casualties in the last few hours, 3,000 in the last 24 hours alone, and these crossings were ordered. Many of the families wanted to know why their loved ones died. I could not imagine being one U.S. soldier died at 10:59 a.m., a minute before the ceasefire. If I'm one of the families of these guys, I'm going to have questions to ask too. You know why? Why will I not see my loved one? Be, and they died hours before the end of the war. Again, to be fair to American high command and military, a lot of the deaths—excuse um, me—a lot of the commanders try to keep their men as safe as possible. That is true, but some did not, and the crossing of the muse went forth anyways. I have some quotations here and some uh, testimony from the actual uh, hearings before Congress. The first one I'm going to read to you is an exchange between congressman oscar bland and general fox connor okay and i'm going to read this to you from uh, from an article i obtained about the the final hours from the war so in the beginning uh, congressman oscar bland is going to be speaking quote how many generals did you lose on that day bland went on none connor replied how many colonels did you lose that day connor i do not know how many were lost how many lieutenant colonels did you lose on that day Connor, I do not know the details of any of that. I am convinced, Bland continued, that on November 11th, there was not any officer of very high rank taking any chance of losing his own life. Connor, the general, visibly seething, retorted, The statement made by you, I think, Mr. Bland, is exceedingly unjust, and as as an officer who was over there, I resented to the highest possible degree. Bland shot back. I resent the fact that these lives were lost, and that the American people resent the fact that these lives were lost, and we have a right to question the motive, if necessary, of the men who have occasioned this loss of life. With that, Connor was dismissed. End quote. So you can really hear the the confrontation you have throughout that whole thing, um, the the seething words described. The tension described. I mean, anytime you have a hearing where civilians are questioning military folks, I think you're going to have tension there because I don't think the civilians understand the conditions that the military is placed under. And I don't think the military understands the civilian's job in what they're trying to do with this hearing. So you're going to have that tension no matter what. I actually like this one a little bit more. Um, This is testimony from General John Sherburn, who's an artillery commander. Um, and this is his own testimony, speaking before a hearing. This one is a little bit more powerful, and actually puts Pershing in the crosshair a little bit. So, I want to give you an idea of what this uh, what this says right here. "Quote: I cannot feel that General Pershing personally ordered or was directly responsible for this attack. If there is any obligation or liability upon him, it is from not stopping what had already been planned." He continues later in his testimony. It was much like a child who had been given a toy that he is very much interested in and that he knows within a day or two is going to be taken away from him. And he wants to use that toy to the handle while he has it. A great many of the army officers were very fine in the way that they took care of their men. But there were certain very glaring instances of the opposite condition. And especially among these theorists, these men who were looking upon this whole thing as perhaps one looks upon a game of chess, or a game of football, and who were removed from the actual contact with the troops. End quote. I mean, right there you have a very, very um, just seething indictment of Pershing and some of the other generals that uh, John Sherburn puts forth. I mean, if we heard that in any committee today, I think Americans would be very shocked. Um, but at this point, patriotism in the U.S. is very high, support for the Army is very high. Uh, it's a very positive outlook of the war, so I don't think testimony like this is going to carry much weight, as you're about to see, especially as I get in some of the other uh, the facts about the testimony. Nevertheless, 3,000 American casualties in the last day, hours of the war, um, you know, hundreds of those being deaths, people that will not go home to their families. Um, eventually, the committee wound down, as all congressional committees do, by January of 1920, and, and the politics really set in at the end of it. The committee was originally intended to investigate only economic findings, find any economic wrongdoing, but a wave grew into um, investigating the final hours of the war, which is the testimony you just heard. Now, Democrats at the time are supporting Woodrow Wilson through and through. Woodrow Wilson is a Democrat. Um, And the hopeful adoption of the Treaty of Versailles and support for the U.S. joining the League of Nations. So politics are about to come in here. The Republicans in the committee were the ones that were very tough on the generals, Bland being Oscar Bland being the one that I uh, referenced in the Fox Connor testimony. So the Republicans of the committee were actually attacked by their Democratic counterparts as unpatriotic. Why are you questioning the military? They did a great job. We won the war. It's over. Um, what does it matter now? That kind of attitude. And, and the Democrats had, I think, on their side, public opinion in a lot of cases. There's a high amount of patriotism, pro-U.S. sentiment, um, anti-German sentiment in the United States that no one is really going to be willing to listen to the Republicans in this committee. So the original report actually found there was unnecessary waste of life in the final hours of World War One, plain as day. However, that report was not the one that was uh, the final draft. And uh, the Democrats successfully struck that language from it. And this narrative of the, the final hours of the loss of life at the end of World War I on November 11th, on the day that we are going to be approaching the 100th anniversary, was somewhat forgotten. Uh, modern historians have really brought it to light. But uh, there was a large loss of life in the last hours of the war for the United States that most Americans do not realize even happened. Me included until recently. Back to kind of the worldview. Ferdinand Foch, the Supreme Allied Commander, wanted to make sure Germany could not cure the war into 1919. There's certain argument to be made that Pershing was simply doing his job and the Americans were doing their job responding to the commands of Foch. That we don't want to see this war drag out any longer. If we fight hard till the end, we'll all get to go home. As unfortunate as those who died in the final minutes of the war. There's an argument there to be said that's the correct narrative. Okay. But I doubt that the families of the U.S. soldiers that were lost in the final hours crossing the Meuse would agree. Following the ceasefire, uh, Germany had two weeks to dismantle its entire Navy, Air Force, and Army. Uh, you can imagine the logistics behind that. This is an army that before the war will march off millions of men and still had many men under their command. Uh, but Germany will be crippled relatively quickly at the end of the war. Boom, right there. Uh, we begin to now see the seeds of the Second World War being sown. This is the part that I think also gets kind of lost in the historical record, but the British keep their blockade on the Germans. They keep that blockade on until June 28th, 1919. That's when the Treaty of Versailles will be signed, which many argue is one of the worst treaties in history. Um, Some will argue the opposite, that it wasn't that bad. I'll leave it that to historians to debate that topic. Um, But that the Treaty of Versailles is signed June 28th, 1919, and... The German civilians are still feeling the sting of that blockade from November 1918 till June 1919 nearly July um, Cause that blockade caused a great many civilian casualties throughout the war uh, and you'll be it's illustrating the final cash numbers of World War one $35 billion had to be paid in reparations uh, by Germany who will take the entire blame for this war when clearly historical record reflects It's not all their fault Um, And they just paid that final bid off in June of 2010. All of this was hashed out in a railway car in Compigny Forest at 5.15 on November 11th and in the days before that as well. And it was agreed that six hours after the original negotiations opened, the ceasefire would take effect being the 11th hour and the 11th day. Um, During that whole time, you have the crossing of the Meuse, which I already discussed, is underway. Well, these guys are talking in the railway car. And the armistice and the Treaty of Versailles just sets the stage for the Second World War. Ferdinand Foch famously said after the Treaty of Versailles was signed in June of 1919, this is not peace. This is, you know, this is going to lead to future war. And he was almost right to the day. Um, It begins the lost cause ideal we see the German army sowing in the 20s and 30s. that, That Germany could have won the war. That Germany should have won World War One. That they were the most powerful country. They were they were never pushed back to German soil. They were merely stabbed in the back by the politicians at home, the socialist elements at home, and eventually they would blame the Jews uh, for this. In through Hitler's Nazi propaganda, when in reality, um, Jewish Germans made up one of the largest contingent of per capita soldiers serving in the army and dying. Um, the Jew, uh, German. Uh, The German-Jewish contingent years after the war would be very clear about that through their own uh, issuing newspapers and and posters and own public ad campaign that they were very much involved in the First World War, despite German investigation to somehow prove that they weren't involved in the war. But this will be Hitler's rallying cry, and Mendel Ludendorff after the war will well, kind of hitch their their wagon to that—that that the Germans should have won, that they uh, they weren't really defeated, and that it was the the politicians at home and everybody that just stabbed them in the back and 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 got to them. Um, when in reality, the German army was soundly beaten. Had the war continued 1919, it would have been more useless loss of of, of life. The Americans would have taken far more casualties, being the Really the last country truly standing I mean the British were at their wits end in 1918 too They really could not have gone on much longer The French in 1917 uh, They're having mutiny problems And the men are refusing to go over the top They'll defend France to be sure But they're not going to go anywhere on the offensive um, The Germans were soundly beaten And I think a lot of the German leadership Saw the right on the wall And wanted to get things at home under control With all the socialist elements rising up As, as, as well but yet again, it sets that narrative for Adolf Hitler and those in the military and others after the war that we were merely stabbed in the back. And if we did it right and we weren't weak, we could have won. At the negotiation in that rail car, the German negotiating general actually complained to Fauch uh, about some of the terms. And the Germans seem to want to end the war earlier, start that ceasefire sooner. But Foch, I think, and many historians agree, wants to keep that pressure on Excuse me. Wants to turn that knife. Wants to keep the pressure up. And he replies to the German general essentially, "Very good." Uh, w- literal words there that Foch says. This rail car, by the way, um, will be blown up by Hitler in World War II. Before he blows that rail car up, he is going to make sure that the after he takes France in that uh, six six weekish period after marching over the French that he makes. Everybody sit in the same seats and makes France sign their peace treaty and their surrender in the same rail car It was displayed for a time in Berlin, but they blew it up when you know The Germans were pretty clear that uh, they were not going to win the war in World War II This armistice is basically a halftime into World War II the Treaty of Versailles the negotiations and the, the attempts of the French, not really attempts because they succeeded, the French and the British to stick it to the Germans and make sure they cannot rise again creates the seeds of the Second World War. A little bit about the death tolls of World War I. Absolutely catastrophic. Absolutely astonishing numbers. Uh, warfare prior to this time never saw anything like this. Uh, Two million Germans, uh, these are military deaths only, by the way. Two million Germans will lose their lives throughout the war. 1.1 million Austro Hungarians. 770,000 Turks 87,500 Bulgarians 2 million Russians and the Russians quit the war in 1917 So they're out a year early, but still 2 million Russians will die 1.4 million French soldiers 1.15 million British soldiers 650,000 Italian soldiers 116,000 Americans and that number may seem small But we were really only as the United States involved the last few months of the war on a full scale That's still a very high number when you think about it um, You compare it to other wars in U.S. history To be only involved for a few months and take those kinds of casualties The Serbs were not on the list that I had But um, I believe some crazy number like 1 in 3 or 1 in 4 Serbs will die uh, Of men, male military age throughout the years of the war 950,000 civilian deaths related to the war Those are due to military you know bombs, bullets but another six million died to war-related famine and disease. Mind you, these numbers are not even taking into account the Spanish flu, which will ravage the entire world made by the conditions of World War I for years after. Uh, Historians estimate the death toll of the First World War anywhere from 17 million to 19 million. This was Armageddon for the world and absolute destruction for the world, as Peter Hart said in the final chapter of his book, uh, The Great War. The, it was it was a completely difficult time for everyone involved. Difficult is the wrong word. Um, there are no words to really describe. I could not imagine being a family member or anyone uh, that had to go through this. It's not well. It's not, World War One is not as well known as World War Two, um, but World War One is far more deadly than the Second World War. If you remove the Eastern Front from the Second World War, if you remove the Eastern Front from the Second World War. More people died in the First World War, uh, and yet it is overshadowed by the Second World War. The U.S. in World War Two, to also put this in perspective, loses just under about 500,000 um, killed in the Second World War, which, if you compare it to the nations of World War One, wow. I mean, we look at, like, the Germans, 2 million, um, the French, 1.4, the British, 1.15 million, the, R- the Russians, 2 million, right there on the millions. In the United States in World War Two loses just under half a million in the, the uh, similar time frame of conflict this is not to minimize the loss of anyone right or they're fighting in their service in World War II but as Americans I think it's this earlier in the program we don't have as good of an idea what that continental warfare was like for Europe and to pay the price of some of these nations this is why World War I is so significant to European countries as in, in the united states it just isn't as as followed uh, Certainly, we did not fight as long in it We did not pay as high of a death toll price prices these other nations But still it deserves worth remembering the united states because I think of the global factor that world war one had as opposed to the The u.s. Factor on the final day november 11th alone uh, Armistice day 100 years ago 11,000 men died Approximately on all sides of world war one 11,000 men on the final day um these estimates are debated, and it's very close, but that's a similar number to all killed on June sixth, 1944, on D-Day. D-Day is a very... Um, it's not celebrated as the wrong word, but a very uh, you know, solemn US remembrance commemorated in this movie Saving Private Ryan for the United States. And the idea that on the final day of the war, you know, in D-Day they're fighting to end the war. This is the final day when the end is, is pretty the outcome is pretty obvious. Um, similar death toll. Now I'm not gonna get into splitting hairs on numbers of which one for certain experienced more casualties than the other, but we know for a fact that the cash numbers were very similar to the final day of World War One. As World War uh, as D Day World War Two. Now, this is the final point I want to make. We look at men like Neville Chamberlain, Prime Minister of Great Britain, at the outset of World War Two, as these these weak minded leaders who simply wanted to appease Hitler and couldn't see the right on the wall. And how could you not see Hitler for what he was? Thinking about what I've just told you about the First World War, could we not see that Neville Chamberlain? I'm not saying I'm a fan, or the man should be forgiven, or that he doesn't. Um, Or that somehow he was right. But can you begin to understand and see why these countries like France and Britain allowed Hitler to take so much in the the 30s uh, of Europe? You begin to understand that these men knew what modern warfare was. They lived through it. They saw it. They experienced millions of people who were killed. In America, we really don't know what millions of casualties is like in a major war. As I just stated, you know, you look at the Second World War under half a million. Again, not minimizing the suffering, half a million deaths in a war is is, is catastrophic in of itself. But we didn't experience the same casualties as these European nations did, like France, like Britain. We didn't have the after-war hangover like they had. So you have to understand that... Can we maybe understand Neville Chamberlain, his policy of appeasement a little bit? The desire to avoid war at all costs after what they saw in these Armageddon-like battles of World War I? Not saying that you know the historical record should forgive Neville, Neville Chamberlain, but I think you can begin to see why people like him wanted to avoid war with Nazi Germany at all costs at the outset of World War II. It's because they lived through the first one. World War One is uh, so significant, and I really hope that uh, you listening today. Thank you for listening. Do some research on this. I to recommend some books that made me fall in love with with the the time period are uh, are the following. Uh, and now it can be told by Philip Gibbs. I mentioned in previous programs is uh, Philip Gibbs was a war correspondent for the British, and he published after the war basically everything he could not publish before the war. Excuse me, during the war, um, and this book was written down the road and. Gives you the idea of what it was like to be on the ground. Uh, World War One, you can be very mixed up in sort of the troop movements, and and from the the godlike or general like perspective, that you lose what it's like to be an average person on the ground, which, let's face it, most of us would have been. Another one for the same kind of uh, look is Storm of Steel by Ernst Junger, probably my, one of my favorite books, top five uh, ever read. It's from a German soldier perspective. Ernst Junger is a German soldier. After the war will be one of the most famous Germans uh, for his writings, and he kind of takes like some uplifting looks. Out of the first world war Which is a different perspective than most You get writings on, uh, on, their, on Individuals experience during the war But I highly encourage you to read that It's a quick read It's a fast read And you really can't put it down And finally uh, The Great War by Peter Hart It is the essential work On the first world war I believe In this day and age It gives you the most Unbiased Fair look at the war Possible If an unbiased opinion Is, is possible at all Peter Hart does a great job I uh, couldn't put that book down it, it is a bit lengthy And heavy but if you want a true understanding of the First World War, from, from the average soldier up to the top, there's no better book. Thank you for listening today. And uh, when Sunday arrives in these next few weeks, please, please take your time to think of veteran, but also take some time to think about the lives lost on, uh, on the Muse offensive in the last hours of the war for the United States and all countries. Take some time to think about the effects of the First World War that we discussed today. Take a moment to maybe pause and, uh, and take, some, take some extra moments to learn about the First World War because it is the most important moment of the 20th century. Thank you for listening today, and uh, this is Holly History.